you, Melody and Rhonda. If there was no Savior and he wasn't lighting our way, what would we do? Let's pray. Father, we've gathered. Some have joined online. Bless them. And now, Lord, I'm asking that you would deepen our ability to hear you speaking behind us, saying, this is the way, walk in it. I'm asking, Lord, that you would be our teacher, that we would bear the mark of your imprimatur, the brand of heaven. Now, Father, hear our prayers and guide our journey. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. want to be praying for our missionaries in Montana this morning as they've made another trip out there. And they will be worshiping in a little church called Plentywood. I'm going to work backwards this morning from the sermon title. The Liar and the Lion, Tyranny and Postmodernism. You know, before I stand in this pulpit, I've got to make certain that I have subjugated myself to the direction of the Holy Spirit. Having said that, whether you're in the pulpit or in the pew or online, each of us are called to make sure we've subjugated ourselves to the direction of the Holy Spirit. The absence of that surrender is the certainty of self-imposed deception. For the master of lies is completely in a different ball league than the ability of humanity. At the end of time, the deceptions will be so close to the truth that a life not lived in surrender to the Holy Spirit with the pervading peace, a willing submission, and a sensitivity to both the spirit of the Word, the direction of the Word, and the presence of the living Spirit to direct in the path of living Christians. That combination will be the combination that leads us home. The lion and the liar, tyranny and postmodernism. What is postmodernism? We hear people talking about it a lot these days. There was a segment of society that social scientists described as modernism. In the modern era, people believed in religion. They believed in science. They believed in hope. But slowly, towards the end of the 20th century, this sense of optimism dissipated. This confidence that there was universal truth went away, evaporated, turned our backs on it, however you want to say it. But we moved from what was considered a modern age where there was hope that things could be solved, problems could be conquered, into a postmodern era. 
So post means it used to be modern. We're past the modern. And it lacks the optimism of there being scientific, philosophical, or religious truth, which will explain everything for everybody. Now, at the end of this sermon, I'm going to touch on the new question that's out there, and that is, is postmodernism dead? This, my friends, is a subject matter of grave reflection. But while we live in the postmodern era where there is no ultimate truth and there is no hope, when it appears that science and religion both appear to be bankrupt of the ability to solve our problems and point us to a brighter future, when the individual can go his own way and nobody should be in the way, we have to ask ourselves, what does living in postmodernism mean to the present and the future of Christians and Christianity. This great juggernaut, this great train of, of societal belief system running on the energy of previous generations, sacrifice, commitment, proper submission, that inertia, that energy that moves this along dissipating as we find ourselves worshiping at the altars of modern culture, imperceptibly imbibing, receiving, and being transformed by the messaging that's out there, that the church is no longer the solution. The church is the problem. It's in the way of societal progress. Its belief structure has subjugated all sorts of people. And while a case may be able to be made in some measure, Certainly, there is another story to be told of the great liberating effects of truth and goodness and godliness. Postmodernism has put us into a very interesting mode of decision-making. I have a copy here of a Pew Research study that suggests most Americans think social media sites censor political viewpoints. Now, you wouldn't be surprised to find out that Republicans think they censor more than Democrats, but most Americans on either side of the aisle believe there is a censoring of information, whether it's in an outright takedown or labeling or whatever it might be. What happens to a society who no longer values absolute truth, right and wrong? Does the commandment that says, thou shalt not bear false witness, have the ability to convict and bend the behavior module to where truth is told, whether it fits with the narrative or not? In a postmodern age, one can expect an ultimate form of tyranny in that now truth is malleable to the masses. And thus, whoever has the greatest mass behind them becomes the arbiter of truth, which in the end, friends, is why the United States is not a raw democracy. It is a republic because there has always been a protection of a minority view. So where we find ourselves in this modern age is on a terrible trajectory towards tyranny because those who hold the microphones, the elites, as it were, are in a position 
to label, to denigrate, to take down, to remove. Indeed, when there is an absence of truth, you're on the slippery slope of tyranny. Now, I believe that tyranny can come from either side. Purchased a book recently entitled Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. I want you to think about that title, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, there is a rise of religious nationalism. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, the hallmarks of the middle of the book of Revelation 12, 13, and 14, we can see indeed as the world polarizes in America, as the culture polarizes in America, that there is a rise of religious nationalism. We find these elements of a liberal democratic democracy with protections for minorities evaporating and fading fast in an age in which people can't agree on much because ideology has become sacred on both sides. And what we agree on is largely gone, which is why there's deadlock in the halls of Congress. It's no longer ideas with a common ballast in the bottom of our cultural boat. It's now ideas that, that very distinctly polarize the way we see the past, the way we see the present, and the way we see the future. So what happens to a society that no longer can discuss facts? What happens to a society that no longer is able to commit itself fully to the liberating protection power of truth? We find ourselves in the throes of fear and impotency. I was walking through the South Bend Airport Thursday afternoon and I came across two pictures. At least they would become pictures to me. Let's bring them back up here. One was a little humor in the midst of our trauma. And this is what it said. It was in front of a a sweets distributor said, surviving quarantine, one chocolate at a time. Please maintain safe distancing while you shop. Come on in, buy our chocolate. And then the other one was by Dwight Eisenhower. This world of ours, he said, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Two things which mark the emotional pathos of our current culture. Fear and hate. This morning, I want to go on a journey in the book of Proverbs. Take your Bibles, if you would, and see if we can't find ourselves onto the path of truth-seeking, honesty, and commitment to the common good. Proverbs chapter 24 is where we'll begin this morning. Proverbs chapter 24. Looking at verse 3, it says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. 
And by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance, you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. By wisdom, a house is built. Considering the fact that many of us have had to lead households, some as mothers, some as fathers, some aiding and abetting and encouraging the households of others as aunties and uncles, maybe even very close friends, all of us must from the beginning determine where those sources of wisdom come from. If a house is built by wisdom and by understanding it's established, if it's through these things by knowledge that the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches, it's probably very, very important that the leaders know how to lead and they're leading on the principles of Scripture and they're confident in a living God and they are not leading anybody to worry and fear. You can't have a home filled with pleasantness and riches all things precious and pleasant, if you're leading with fear or hate. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs chapter 26. Looking at verse 17. It says, Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Why would you include that one, Pastor? Because I find myself completely locked in a cultural argument about how to relate to the current state of health, economy, and education. And I have to ask myself, am I grabbing the cultural dog by the ears? Now, I have a big black dog at my house. To my knowledge, I've never grabbed it by the ears. It has crushing jaws, which have never laid their mouth in a... I'm not saying I haven't ever felt the teeth, but I've never felt them with the power to harm. But knowing what they feel like, is it wise for anyone today to grab this cultural dog by the ears Or should one stay far removed and let what be be? Or is the church actually to be a conservative agent, an agent of preservation of all things civil and noble and full of liberty and responsibility? Is the church to remain individually as members and collectively as an institution the salt that purifies and preserves, that flavors and brings the beauty of holiness? Turn, if you would, over to Proverbs 29, looking at verse 9. The scriptures are quite clear. Verse 9, when a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs, and there is no rest. It might not be the bite of the dog when you're dealing with the fool. It might indeed be the ends of the spectrums of emotion, the anger of how dare you, or the scorn of you know nothing. In our society, one of those two things is the easy go-to collectively and individually. 
When a person's idea is challenged and that idea lies too close to the false narrative, one must rage or scorn. But the scriptures aren't done. Go back to chapter 26, looking at verse 5, and we find a risk-taking directive from Solomon. Proverbs chapter 26, looking at verse 5. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. Somebody's got to take a risk. Somebody's got to go ahead and say, hold on for just a few moments there. Could we examine that just a little bit more? Is it open to a 360 review? Or must it be protected, this house of cards, by a radical wall of narrative protection? Yes, God directs that we should not move the ancient landmarks and that we should maintain that which has protected this society. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28, which your fathers have set. This indeed is the call of the moment. What is at stake for many in the minds of those who study the cultural and societal movements is the very essence of a liberal democracy. Now let's go to Proverbs 30. Proverbs chapter 30 is a prayer. Before Solomon ends his sayings, he makes this request. Proverbs chapter 30, and we'll begin with verse 7. There are two things that I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Now, I want to pause right there for just a moment. Abraham Lincoln would say that knowledge is power. And certainly we live in the most empowered age there is. And yet, if there is not a commitment to the broad spectrum of understanding, if there's not a commitment to truth, knowledge itself becomes the data point for deception. We know the old saying, figures lie and liars figure. What we must have in the representation of data is the integral part of integrity so that all can see as much as there is to see. And when it's seen, all can decide. Verse 8, keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Keep me from deception. Keep me from lies. Now go back to Proverbs chapter 6. These themes run throughout the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6. And I want to begin with verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Count them up. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. So pride makes it onto the list, first thing. The second is a lying tongue. Now, I want you to notice there's seven things listed, but some things are repeated. What are they? 
Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. There it is. Repeat. And one who spreads strife among the brethren. How is it that in the summary of seven abominations, there's really only six, and there's this repeating cycle? Perhaps there's something exceptionally important about truth. It can be personal. And without God, it's awfully hard to see our personal flaws because all we've got is us. But with the knowledge of the pierced hands of Jesus and the love of heaven, we can be honest about ourselves. But that's not this morning's subject matter, although it is liberty-giving because the truth, according to Christ, is the only thing that sets us free. But how is it that six are turned into seven? Is because one is so dangerous to the fabric of humanity and the personal salvation of individuals that God doesn't want us deceiving ourselves and setting ourselves up to be deceived by others or deceiving others. A lying tongue and a false witness who utter lies. The truth matters so much so that without it, one wanders in ignorance. And ignorance is an ugly word that leads to darkness. Turn over to Proverbs 27. In Proverbs chapter 27, we find the divine directive for determining truth. Proverbs chapter 27 how do we save ourselves? It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Yesterday afternoon, I sat for probably an hour, hour and a half with an individual whom I appreciate and respect, and we had a dialogue. In the course of that dialogue, there were things we did not agree upon. The beauty was that nobody was raging or scoffing. The beauty was, was that in that environment, points of reference were shared, which had the ability to save us from the aberrations of self, the sound chambers and the silos of our own making. But it just turns out that Solomon addresses this as well. Go back to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. I actually prefer the New King James Version, although I'm preaching from the New American Standard this morning. Proverbs 18, verse 1. Some versions say, he who isolates. I think it's a better interpretation. This one says, he who separates himself seeks his own desire, and he quarrels against all sound wisdom. You know, raising four children and putting them through an educational system meant that they were subject to the dis disciplining and discipling touch of many other Christian people, mainly teachers, some deans, probably a chaplain, some librarians, maybe even the school janitor. Of course, we did that ourselves for a little while to make it all work. The truth of the matter is, is that most of those people who helped shape the lives of my children, I have the highest regard for them. My children knew this. 
They knew that when they went to school, they were to pay respect to those individuals who had a sacrificial pay wage, were giving lots more than the basics, were committing themselves with hearts and minds of love. But you know, every once in a while, those people in those institutions made some mistakes. They clearly made some mistakes. In my own mind, they clearly made some mistakes. And it was my commitment to teach my children how they were to relate to those individuals that made mistakes. And of course, the simplest premise and principle for teaching my children how to relate to other adults who made mistakes was to direct them to practice Matthew chapter 18. It works everywhere it works. And when it's not worked is the only time it doesn't work. And it doesn't always get the solution you want, but what it does do is liberate you from the festering resentments that grow in a heart where a different point of view or a wrong is not re redressed. And so I would send them. And their categories of response fell into two types. Those who could see their mistake and say they're sorry, and those who would never say they're sorry to a child. Now, I'm not sure that my kids ever had the one on this side. But I do know this. Occasionally, some of those wonderful denominational employees would get themselves out on what I consider a very precarious limb. And the saw was in the hand of my child. And the truth of the matter was, as soon as my child started talking, not me, not their mother, that person had to make a decision. Do I come in off the limb or do I stay out there while this adolescent saws? I'll guarantee you, you'll get the rage or the scoffing or some professional version thereof when a person of any age is not committed to truth. I've apologized many times to my children and plenty of times to my parishioners. The truth of the matter is is that if you don't want to have a precarious position in which you're tempted to rage or scoff, you must be committed to the truth, whether it fits a narrative or doesn't fit a narrative. The truth of the matter is, is that an improper or untruthful position is very hard to defend. Thus, you either have to step on the voice or you have to change your position. But when you're not willing to do either of those, you have to rage or scoff. And usually, or at least part of the time, it's not in the presence of the one who has the boldness, as it were, to deal with a fool so he's not wise in his folly. If you isolate yourself, you can seek your own desire, but you will be raging against all sound wisdom. But let's go on. Proverbs chapter 25, this time looking at verse 26. Proverbs chapter 25, looking at verse 26. Like a trampled spring and a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. You know, there are two counts on which anybody who has an American citizenry and a membership in the Seventh-day Adventist Church should not move. As soon as you move 
for convenience or expediency, you have shown yourself a pragmatist, which means you're Plato in the hands of circumstance and a future victim of the tactics of the evil one. Listen to me. This nation was predicated on the rigid backbone of truth. Whether it was political or of governance, whether it was the right to representation, if there'll be taxation, right on down the line. If your name is enrolled, if you carry one of these passports that says United States of America on it, and you hold citizenry in this country, the first reason you should never budge on a conviction is because this very nation was birthed under the sense of the right to believe as you will. Of course, there's limits, and I'm not suggesting those limits are not part of the responsibility of a free society. But when you take the name of Christ in this church, you've made a journey that's based on a sense of the living presence of God and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit on your life based on the inspired writings of this word received and applied to the practicality of your life. And as soon as you move out of expediency or pragmatism, whether it's in marriage or parenting or teaching or leading in any other way, but especially in elements of person, you have begun a journey to be shepherded with the fearful into the security of the providers, which will eventually end up with permission to buy and sell and to breathe. But there's an end to that too. Seventh-day Adventist Christians are not to be party-identified. The idea that you would find an ideology outside of the truths of Scripture and identify yourself thus is a betrayal of your credibility for the one who left heaven to save you. Don't go around touting things that easily make you a non-listen-to individual. Truth doesn't lie on a political spectrum. Truth is truth that holds political spectrums accountable. And when you no longer are committed to truth, no matter where it lands, you are no longer a Christian. And some people don't realize they've pretzelized their profession, tying themselves up into knots, because somehow they want this to be true because it fits a lifestyle, a habit pattern, a cultural tradition. And God says, I'm in the habit of unraveling Gordian knots, some of which you've created for yourself. Praise God and hallelujah for all the personal problems we get ourselves into. But that's not my subject matter this morning. Just a little interjection of hope. The truth remains the truth. And if you have to mock or you have to scorn, you're not in the truth whether it's in writing or verbiage, whether it's in presence or absence. God calls us to believe what we believe and not become a trampled spring or a polluted well as we give way before masses or minorities. God's people, like Martin Luther, 
have determined that life in the truth is liberty and anything else is bondage, whether it be of spirit, intellect, or emotions. Proverbs chapter 29. Let's go there. Proverbs chapter 29, looking at verse 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Yes, he who trusts in the Lord will be tried. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Sometimes that liberty is even as one is dying, but we are to live with that liberty. The freedom of Christ in our hearts is priceless. The peace of God that passes all understanding is to be experienced by his children. But, we are not to fear the face of man. We are to trust in a God who's present, desiring to live in us, enlarging our heart, broadening our intellect, deepening our understanding and our wisdom, and we are not to be afraid of anybody. Hard to do. Lady, have you been afraid of what will happen? If you follow the God-given directives and principles of Scripture, and have you subjugated yourself in the wrong way to a Christian husband? Think about it. Man, God keeps prompting you. Stiffen up. Stand up. Be who you're supposed to be. But you're afraid of the outcome. I might lose a friend. I might lose a relative. I might lose a job. I might lose status. What happens to a society, according to Solzhenitsyn, when people won't do that? All that it takes for demagoguery to succeed is for good men to do nothing. Polluted well, trampled spring. And I've told this story before, but it bears telling again to an always changing audience of that little artesian spring down at Timber Ridge Camp, out on the far end of the lake, Sabbath afternoon hike all around. There it is bubbling out of the water, and someone gets a little mouthful, but while they're drinking, pure right out of the earth, there's a little twig or something in there, in their mouthful of water. And what do they do? They drop their hand and they spit their water out right into the well, and nobody in the rest of the line wants a drink. That's how it works. Now let's go. We're working our way back. Now let's get down to the lions. Could we do that? Proverbs chapter 22. They're out there. You're never going to find in the Bible that it says there are no lions. There's a lot of lion stories in the Bible. David and Samson and the prophet that wasn't to, to stop or deviate. We go down through the stories and what we find is that the lion becomes the consummate symbol of evil and the consummate symbol of good in the animal kingdom. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The devil is the lion that goes about looking for somebody to devour. And I can still hear the sound of that lion at the, at the Lincoln Park Zoo there not far from Lake Michigan every evening as they close up, at least it used to be this way, as they close up the zoo, the lion knew it was almost time to eat, and you could hear him roaring. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 13. 
The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. Now Solomon doesn't suggest there is no lion outside. As a matter of fact, he'll, he'll take this up again in Proverbs chapter 26. Let's go there. Proverbs chapter 26. But this time, it'll be just a little bit different. Verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a lion is in the open square. Now, when we compare the two verses, we see that they have one similarity. They both are lazy people. What is it about laziness that lends itself to cowardice? What is it about self-indulgence and the love of pleasure that lends itself to fear and timidity? Is it really possible that not only are we watching the death of postmodernism as we watch the death of modernism, is it not possible that a consumer society has actually been trained to be a receiving, not contributing? a getting, not a giving society? Is it really possible the very fabric of a whole generation or two of people could be transformed into people who can't solve problems versus people who can? Is it possible that even our Christianity could morph into that of the sluggard or the lazy man? If it's convenient and it works for me, I'll do it. One might be able to literally say that it doesn't matter if the rest of the world is lost in the process. There's a lion in the road. There's a fierce lion in the streets. I'm going to be slain by the lion, Proverbs 22, verse 13. I'm here to tell you today there's a lion in the streets. There's a lion in the open square, and you know what? He sunk his jaws deep into the hearts of many. I once had the privilege in Africa to go to the Ngoro Crater, and I watched a lion. The kill was already made. But I watched a lion carry a zebra in its jaws and partially climb a tree. Now, I want to tell you, lions are big, strong animals. But so are wild horses. If there is the sense of predator and predation in a society, if there is the sense of the fear of man, is there, if there is this absence of backbone, is it possible that God would actually be calling us to make a change. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Proverbs 24, 10. Deliver those who are drawn towards death and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. The righteous, according to Solomon, in Proverbs chapter 28, 
are as bold as a lion. What an amazing contrast. Verse 1, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Now, we spent a lot of time in the Word here. Now I'm going to put some traction down on societal living. I'm here to tell you there are some narratives that cannot be challenged. Last week I presented a, pap a paper written by Ayani Gu, neuroresearch medical student or researcher in neuroscience at a graduate level. The newspaper there retracted that. You need to know that Dr. Genevieve Briand did not retract her analysis, however. And while there is some truth to be discovered somewhere, the paper thought better than to censor what was written, and they decided to put it back up a day later with retracted by the, news, the newsletter. I received several articles from different ones of you, many favorable, some questioning. To each of them, I responded somewhat similarly, although some I have not gotten to yet. This sermon may have to be the answer to some of those things. So I began doing my own analysis. I discovered along the way that Dr. Brienne has not retracted her analysis. She is the PhD assistant director of the Applied Economics Program, and she does have an expertise, or at least does something with statistics. I have no problem looking at both sides of the coin, but the very idea that this analysis needed to be censored is highly problematic to our society. And while I believe in the common good, and while I desire the good health and well-being of all, there are ramifications behind the scenes for me understanding the prophetic movement of time that compels me to compel you that you cannot move at the dictates of fear, and you must make good decisions for yourself, but if you bow down before the masses of evil without some sense of personal conviction, you too can be a polluted well. We've heard a lot about the common good. We want to be protectors of it. Some would suggest that for all that we've done to protect the spread of a disease here, that we haven't done it exactly as some have said to do it. I've heard two things as we come through our seventh month of assembling, singing vigorously, gathering in large numbers, socially distanced cooperating with laws of health, circulating air, air filters running, touchless butter fillers, dismissed from the back, all kinds of things. I've heard that we're lucky, and I've heard that we're blessed. We're lucky that after six and a half months and nine days of camp meeting and multiple nights of meeting for prayer meeting, we're lucky. Are we lucky? Are we blessed? 
And is it maybe not even that simple? Is it possible that if you're not sick, long time it's been since the narrative of singing as the super spreading agent has gone away. We haven't heard that for months. Is it really possible that if you're not sick, it's okay to gather and it's okay to sing? Wouldn't it be good for a society to be able to openly discuss these things? And wouldn't it be nice if we could do it without the mocking or the scorning? When are we going to go from being lucky to blessed and beyond blessed to simply using good common sense and cooperating and the science actually is with us? The studies are all over the board out there. I don't want to spend too much time in this because it's not my main point. I'm quite confident that this congregation will not become a super spreader after almost seven months of meeting because we are practicing good public health and we are blessed. But for the common good, there is this suggestion. Certainly, it has dawned upon some that some of the mitigations must not do as much as they appear to do considering we had a spike and certainly considering we had very large numbers of travel 16 days ago or more for moving around this country. Certainly, there must be a way to do this because there is no greater spike after gathering for our Thanksgiving meals. Look at the numbers. I have a piece of paper in this pulpit right now showing the numbers for this county. Caution is good. Wisdom is to be embraced. But I want to tell you the next common good theme that's on its way is the common good theme for the planet. And while I believe as a steward of the garden that we are to take good care of this planet, I am absolutely confident we cannot save it. But as I walk through the airports and I see the large placard that says, the earth needs a good lawyer, with the sun rays shining through the redwoods. And then there will come one other common good. When postmodernism dies, and friends, it will die a very rapid death. According to the Scripture, a deadly wound will be healed and religion will be in the ascendancy like it never has been before. Yes, postmodernism will die. And when it dies, it will be cataclysmic. For it itself is a form of Babylonian belief. And when the common good is to get back to God... If we've practiced the shepherding of the subjugation of our own brains, our own hearts, and our own link to God, we shall be shepherded into the very arms of supposed security, which is the surrendering of an eternal salvation. Now, I have a few minutes, and I'm just going to share a few things I think you should all know. For all the science you hear in certain places, there are 38,463 medical practitioners as of this morning in this country, Europe, and Australia who believe we're going to have to learn to get along with this disease a little bit differently than lockdowns and shutdowns. 
There's another 12,785. That's the great Barrington Covenant led by leading doctors from Oxford and Stanford and some very significant other places. I'm holding in my hands here a recent article from the Detroit News. Religious private schools sue Michigan Health over COVID restrictions. Very new, very recent. I myself talked to the director of this non-public school association earlier this year. Why? Why are they gathering and bringing lawsuit? Because they believe that their high school teenagers should be able to go to school in their religious schools if they so choose to. You'll have to decide whether you agree with that or not. But these people have a right to do what they're doing. And you need to know there are plenty of other people who are suggesting that there ought to be the full spectrum of discussion. I have another article here. The Great Barrington Declaration, When Arrogance Leads to Recklessness. There's obviously a bunch of people who think that the concept of herd immunity is not to be reached in any other way than we're going. In the beginning, Sweden was a pariah, an outcast, a social governmental outcast. You hear nothing about Sweden anymore because Sweden managed to stay true to what it believed about the way disease works, this kind of disease. And now we hear nothing about Sweden. Why? Because it doesn't fit certain narratives. And now we have what Bill Barr called at his speech at Notre Dame, airsats, parenting. In other words, we have papa government and mama government doing our thinking for us in some situations. I'm not against government. I'm not a rebel. I'm not a revolutionary. But I also believe that in a free society built upon the free flowing of ideas and the exchange of understandings that you make your decisions like this. And yet we've turned to where some believe it is their prerogative to decide for us what is good and bad. I want to remind you of something that on October 6, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, 1536, there was a man that most of you are greatly indebted to. Put your hand on your Bible. Could you do that? Just put your hand on your Bible and think William Tyndale. I want you to understand that at one point in time, as he ran across the English Channel to print his English Bible, he believed so strongly in the fact that you could understand this yourself that he risked his very life. Eventually, he was betrayed. For what? You need to remember, the Bibles that were printed there Across the, across the channel were gathered up in England and they were burned. Do you know why? Because it was dangerous for you to be able to read this for yourself. And when they strangled him, the king said, anybody that's a part of this is going to have to be punished severely. As a matter of fact, let me read the quote directly. Perhaps I omitted it in the distillation of my notes. 
But the king made it very clear anybody participating in the printing and distribution of these books was to be distinctly and painfully punished. And so what was that distinct and painful punishment? Burning at the stake. Which, of course, after they strangled him, he was. So now I'm out of time, but that's okay. I don't have much left. Is postmodernism dead? Good question. I'm holding in my hands here an article from the Times Literary Supplement from the UK. But it's not just the question, is postmodernism dead? The real reason I want to end with this this morning is the question it asks. Is postmodernism dead? Not quite. Almost. But the thing everybody ought to be paying attention to and ought to be asking themselves as it has a direct influence on how we relate to life, society, government, family, church, God, is this. What comes next? What comes next? I'll go straight to the Bible for that. And the deadly wound was what? Healed. A nation without God where truth no longer matters, where narratives must be protected and freedom of speech is not allowed, where there is the mass shunning, that society is in trouble. The question is, are we a polluted well or a trampled spring? Can you be who you are called to be? Can you respect others who feel differently? Can you carry your head with grace and dignity and conduct yourselves in something more than a casually informed posture? Can you be a true Seventh-day Adventist Christian who is not party-defined and narrative-labeled? Can the truth still do its work and can we have confidence that God delivers us when we do not fear the face of man? There is a lion in the streets. The message of the liar is that nothing can be done about it. Hunker down and hide out. But the message of the righteous is, let's deal with the lion. There is a lion that's going about seeking to devour, Peter writes. Read the next verse. It says, resist him. Listen, friends, it's individual, it's collective, it's cultural. God is calling you and I to be the Proverbs 28.1. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Fear leads is developed by guilt, Ellen White says. And if you read the quote in your bulletin, God actually creates environments where we have to fight pretty earnestly against doubt and fear. That's how faith is developed. May God help each one of us to understand when we're in one of those moments and go boldly in the name of Jesus, unafraid, into the future as postmodernism ebbs away. May God help each one of us to have the spiritual backbone because we've got our hand in the hand of the Master. Amen. We're going to pray.
Let's stand. I'd love to sing our closing hymn, but we've run out of time. Lord, present truth. Hard to find truth in a postmodern society. It appears that it's easy to neuter a message or a voice by labeling it as political. It appears, Lord, that it's awfully hard to change our minds because we're not with each other enough to love and respect and listen. It appears, Lord, that some very elemental human needs are what's being wrestled through right now, the chief of which is security. Oh, Lord, may our security be in you. May we use these good minds. May we respectfully live out our convictions. And may we be seekers after truth and more than that, defenders of truth. And may we do it with a graciousness that makes it difficult not to listen. Save us from the lion in the streets, I pray. And save us from the tyranny that follows by stiffening our backs, strengthening our minds, broadening and deepening our hearts this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.